Hey, this is Steve Balton. You're here on My Turning Point, where this week, man, really honored to be joined by Black Crow's frontman, Chris Robinson. Fascinating conversation, as you would expect, on so many things, from the band's early influences, his first day's songwriting, and reclaiming not just being in the Black Crow's, but more importantly, his relationship with his brother, Rich. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thanks. Hey, how are you, dude? Cool. Sorry about that. Dude, three minutes late in like music time is nothing. How you been, man? It's been it's been a long minute since we talked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like everyone else, you know what I mean? Just uh getting by on anxiety and uh <laughs> <laughs> But we're good, everything's good. We're all like, you know, like anything else. We, yeah, we're gonna persevere, you know. Well, yeah, and now we're kind of uh, you know coming back into the real world, that's a whole separate form of anxiety, but, uh, you know, let's, let's, it, it, I mean, the levels of conversations I've had during this last year have been utterly fascinating and I'm excited to get your take on this. Let's sort of start the podcast portion with your turning point moment and turning point moment is such a tricky thing because you can go as big or as little as you want and people go either very personal, like I've had artists talk about finding out their parents had cancer or their sobriety or people just talking about the first show they've seen. So, and I mean, and obviously, understandably, you know, you've had several of them over the years. So is there one that sort of stands out to you that you think of when you think of where you are today? Yeah, I was, (laughs) as a matter of fact, I could maybe, you know, I could pinpoint many of them, but one that always sticks out to me is, was the summer of like 85 or or spring. I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, horribly dyslexic man in the world. That's where I should be the turning point, actually being diagnosed as dyslexic. But uh, I didn't really, I was a a senior in high school. I I was having difficulties like going to, you know, where am I, what am I going to do? All I knew is that I knew my life would revolve around art, you know, around my creative waking life. But I didn't really, you know, I didn't play in it. You know, my, my, my dad was a really good singer and he thought I couldn't sing. I didn't know, you know what I mean? So I thought what I will, what I'll do is the only thing, I, other only thing I was interested in uh, was music, literature and cinema, you know what I mean? And I, and being in Atlanta, it seemed like movies and stuff, not acting or any part of it would be so far away. But I had a therapist at the time who had a friend at Bennington College in Vermont where they had, you know, the kind of the most, I don't know if prestigious is the word, but they had the hottest like literary course there. You know what I mean? And a lot of young 80s writers, American writers were coming out of that. And I was like, okay, well, that's, I, that's what I thought I would do. I would write. And this therapist of mine Somehow he talked to the admission, said, I want you to meet this kid. I don't want you to look at his grades. I want you to be in a room with him and talk to him. And this guy really believed in me and my, you know, uh, my talent. And, uh, and so it's 16 hour drive from my suburban Atlanta home to Bennington. And I got in the back of my dad's car, my mom and dad, and we didn't even leave our subdivision. And in my mind, I was like, <laughs> I'm not fucking doing this, man. You know what I mean? I mean, I didn't say anything. I, I went through the whole thing. I had a horrible interview. I was so surly and horrible. You know what I mean? It's like in true poetic form, only Charles Baudelaire would have had a worse interview than me. You know? um, 
And, but it was true. Five seconds out of that driveway, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be in a band. I'm going to be a musician and a songwriter. And I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to stop. I'm not ever going to turn. I'm not going to have anything else. I'm not going to have any backup plan. <laughs> and that was like, and that was it, man. You know, like my parents were upset with my behavior on the trip and everything. And when I got back, my dad pretty much was like, okay, man, if you want to be Mick Jagger, you can pack your shit and get the fuck out of the house. You know what I mean? And it was big, but it was, it was, you know, those type of things for parents and my, you know, that era, you know what I mean? It was a different time. Rock and roll was a different woolly mammoth roaming the land, you know, destroying villages and stuff, you know? So, but that was a big thing. That was it. You see, that's so funny, okay? Because you, your dad was a singer, you said, but he didn't think he could sing. So when did you decide that you could? Well, I mean, the, where my, you know, where, where my voice would take me was much different than starting because we were punk rock, you know, we were, uh, you know, '80s American hardcore. Even though our interest, you know, Rich and I's. I loved hardcore music, but then I found my interest more in like, you know, Jeffrey Lee Pierce and John Doe and Exine and, uh, you know, those kind of bands more. And then the, the Paisley Underground hit, and that was really big, Dream Syndicate, Rain Parade, and, uh, and Indie Rock, you know, R.E.M. and Let's Active, Game Theory, and things like The Cure and Susie and the Band, all of these things, you know. Uh, I did, we, we weren't really, we haven't really found our connection to Roots music yet. I hadn't really found my voice. And uh, I kind of, I didn't know, you know what I mean? And then I, I grew up listening to P-Funk and Prince and Lakeside, SOS band. You know, I'm from Atlanta, so there's a lot of black music influence. Sly and the Family Stone, James Brown and P-Funk are like huge, you know. Uh, and then the R&B stuff, Otis and... Uh, Sam and Dave and, you know, there's Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Buddy Holly, like all of these things. So we start to let that come into it. And then I found my, I allowed some of that kind of that sound into my voice. And and then we find, you know, George Draculius, our producer and A&R man. One day he played me Miss Judy's Farm by the faces. And it was just like one of those like, whoa, wait a minute. I knew Rod Stewart from like other stuff. I didn't know that. They never played the faces on 96 rock in Atlanta. And you never heard any of that music in our punk new wave scene either. You know? And when I heard that, it was like, Oh my word. Then I found like, you know, I mean, cause I was into the stones, but I got into the stones deeply through Graham Parson because we loved, you know, institution of cosmic American music through these English drugged out lenses, you know, um, and then we just kind of crept up to there. George, you know, George pushed me and, you know, you would do shows and someone would say, Oh, you ever listen to Terry Reed? You know, it's like, no. And then you go out and buy as many Terry Reed records as you can. Did you listen to Lowell George? No. Did you listen to Steve Marriott? No. You know, and then, you know what I mean? Digging deeper, Paul Rogers and Frankie Miller and all these kind of white rock soul singers, you know? Yeah. By the way, just as an aside, because you mentioned a lot of names in there. I love the fact you mentioned Dream Syndicate because coming from L.A., I actually think they're the most underrated L.A. band ever. I, I totally agree with you. It's so funny because I've been friends with Steve, Steve Wynn for many, many years and and also, I love Kendra Smith so much, you know what I mean? And like when she and David Roback started, Clay Allison, 
and Opal and those groups. I mean, that's my favorite, favorite records. But you know what? They're, they're, I have to throw Green on Red in there. And we did love the first couple of Long Riders records and stuff, you know. So that all that music, I mean, and I can never emphasize the importance of R.E.M. to young Rich Robinson and I. You know, me and my brother, R.E.M. was influential in our initial forays into like rock and roll. Yeah, one of the greatest bands ever to me still. It's funny, is there at first time, maybe two, three years ago, had always wanted to. And it, I think that's a band that Legacy, who just grows so much. It's funny, by the end of their career, you know, people were kind of like, eh. And now, if they came back, that'd be huge. It'd be huge. They'd be I mean, we, freaking Coachella. When, or before the pandemic hit, we were finishing up our Brothers of a Feather acoustic tour we were doing. And we were in Portland, where Peter Buck lives. I, I mean, I, I mean, I used to try to dress like Peter and cut my hair like Peter. And I know, he, you know, like we've, you know, we've sold 20 million albums or whatever, you know, like we're the Black Crows, but I know, you know, we're having lunch with him. And I know he still sees me and Rich and those kids like, here's a cassette of our new demos. We'd see him at the club <laughs> at the DB's concert or something, you know, but he sat in, we did, um, he sat in with us at the club that night. And it was so funny. We had seven Chinese brothers acoustic uh, i mean i've jammed with a lot of like people you know what i mean i was in a band with fucking jimmy page and i told i was like i've never been more nervous than to like get on stage with peter you know what i mean that was like amazing see i love that though because i talk about this with artists all the time too and it's like i think you should never lose that sense of fandom and especially you know i know i've seen you guys with jimmy page at the greek theater here in la and all this but it's like when there's someone who I was talking about this with, I was interviewing Don McLean yesterday and we were talking about it in regards to his impression of Elvis heartbreak hotel, the shit you hear when you're 12, 13, 14, that forms your whole identity. And it never, it, nothing will ever surpass that in terms of the, you may like other stuff better, but in terms of the importance, nothing will ever surpass that. I mean, yeah. I, t I mean, I agree. I mean, luckily we've, you know, like my, my whole life has been exploring the world through the music I listen to, you know, and at 13, 14, the most, to me, the, my, the thing that I loved the most was a TV show from Los Angeles called new wave theater with a host named Peter Ivers. And it was on a, it was on night flight, USA's night flight. It would come on at two in the morning on Saturday nights flag uh, you know, X, uh, the plugs, you know, like every, and all sorts of suburban lawns and like all these weird groups in this kind of mishmash 80s punk, psychedelic, political, absurdist little TV show. And being a kid in suburban Georgia where most of the other kids are like, you know, going to see 38 special or Van Halen or whatever, you know what I mean? I was like, this is, this was our scene. It was all the, you know, my mom was like, why do all your friends look like they're the, they're the extras on one floor of the cuckoo's nest. You know what I mean? I was like, cause we fucking are, you know what I mean? Mom, mom, you know what I mean? Look at me, you know, like we're the, everyone thought we were, that music meant so much about your culture and your, and, and who you were as well, you know what I mean? To kind of step outside of what was deemed normal, you know? And that's always been a huge influence on the politics of the Black Crows, you know what I mean? The us versus them and, you know, did it serve us? Not always, but I'm still here. And we told a lot of people to go fuck themselves in the business in the best way, not in any sort of 
we felt we were self-important or we felt we were precious in any way. It was just like, you don't fucking care. They don't care about your talent, your vision, your heart, your soul, your sincerity. They care about how much money they make. And that's cool too, man. I'm not even, I'm nowhere near naive enough to pretend it's not that. But I always felt that, that as a true Rastaman, <laughs> no one can buy me, no matter what, you know what I mean? And that was like, my idols were that way, from the writers I love, to the directors I love, to the whatever, the records, you know what I mean? And I think that, not was it problematic? Yes, but I think it was also the buoyancy through some of the bullshit of the business, you know what I mean? Is to have, Rich and I are as different as we are, we both believe in the mythos of rock and roll, we believe in the legend that this music means something, that there is something in there. We understand the muse is a vengeful goddess and you have to prostrate yourself in front of her and give uh, and give her your loyalty or she, she's, a, she's vengeful. She'll take it away, you know? See, this is so fascinating to me and I'm with you a thousand percent and I've told a lot of people to fuck off over the years and never hurt my career. So I, I with you, but it's interesting because when I think of the artists, who, who exemplify that best, you know, and it's funny because you think of someone like, for example, like a Patti Smith, but she wasn't really a fuck off type person. To me, I think of someone like a Tom Waits, Neil Young. you know, or a Neil Young or Joni, you know, these people who've done every, Joni may have been the definitive fuck off person of the, I'm going to do whatever I want, whatever I want. So for you, are there those artists that, that as you were coming up, you looked up to and even now you, because the other thing is too, as you go through the experiences more over the years, you appreciate them more and you have a deeper appreciation for what some of these artists have done. So are there those sort of fuck off role models for you in music? I mean, you know, it's funny because, but I think Johnny Lydon, you know, especially like going from the Pistols to PIL is really another one who, like I read his book and I was just like, wow, you know what I mean? Like he, he, I wouldn't say he's a huge influence on me, but his attitude and his like, that's the whole point of being an artist is, you know, if I had wanted to be in the service industry, I would be in it. And I, you know, dude, a great waiter can make a shit dinner. Amazing. You know what I mean? Like that's, just, that's the fucking truth. But I, you know, I like, like Susie Sue is someone that I just like, and I, and then you put being a woman on top of it, which makes it even harder. You know what I mean? But I, I look at Susie Sue and I go on these deep, deep dives of watching every bit of live footage of just how powerful and amazing. And she was a woman standing there, did not give a fucking rat's ass what you thought. It was her um, belief in what she was doing that's so inspiring and so deep and unique. I, I mean, I, I mean, but there's millions, like I was saying, like the other band that like I, I, that you, you put whoever you want in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Until you put X in there, I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, to me, X is one of the great, 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 great American rock bands of all time. You know what I mean? Like, uh, or someone like Joe Strummer. You know what I mean? Lucky enough to get hardly drunk with one night back in the late 90s. But Strummer didn't give a shit either. You know what I mean? And that's why he's... That's why his soul is beautiful. You know, money's powerful, man. Ego is powerful. And I'm, I'm a capitalist. I'm not even going to pretend. But I'm also an artist and I know I will ever care, you know, except for me. <laughs> that I'm like, you know what I mean? But, and Rich is the same way. You know, we want to make a lot of money. It's nice. We have families. We have responsibility. I'd like to 
have nice things and I buy a lot of records, dude. You know what I mean? Like, or whatever, you know, I like uh, French restaurants and I like uh, poulet fousses and poulet fumets, but I'm not ever going to be something I'm not to obtain material things when I've been given the blessing of being able to, to, to live like this, you know? That's so interesting. So you mentioned a couple of times you and Rich being so different, but similarities. And, you know, and I'm sure you have, like you mentioned being in a band with Jimmy Page, right? You have these experiences that at the time you're like, oh, that's cool. And then later on, you're like, wait, how the fuck did that actually happen? Well, one of those experiences for me was interviewing Iggy with Ron and Scott Ashton together. And, and he was saying that as you get older, all the stuff that kind of, you know, drove you apart and drove you mad just dissipates. So it's interesting for you guys. Do you find now that, you know, the similarities start to override whatever else happened and you realized, and of course the other thing too is, you know, what you create with the Black Crows. And I talked about this with Perry Farrell and Dave Navarro after Jane's Addiction Reunited. It's something that becomes larger than life. It becomes larger than you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think, I think also, you know, like I'm a dyslexic extrovert and Rich is an OCD introvert. I mean, you know, so you know, Rich, now that I'm older, and I, and I always have to say, you know what I mean? Like my, my wife, Camille, has, you know, opened my heart and so much and my, allows me to see the world in a different way without so much other stuff that I'm like, wow, you know, I like a crowded dressing room with people after the show. I like people around. I like that energy. Rich has social anxieties and he, you know what I mean? Like a, every night a room full of different people would just make him like shut down. But I was I didn't really care. You know what I mean? That's my own callous, uh, trying to keep that fucking train on the tracks and keep it rolling and keep everybody fed. I, I didn't fucking care. But now that I'm older, I'm like, now I see it, you know, now I understand it. Now I want to, you know, in my own, Rich is a grown man, but I want to be able to make this experience the best for Rich. And I understand him better. He understands that his, you know, when we've spent life without each other in different projects, we understand the special gift each of us brings to our musical communion, you know, and, you know, my ego was hurt or whatever. And then it's like, well, you know, the Black Crows should be about this or about me or about that. And then I realized, wow, I mean, it's, it's me. It's, it is me and Rich. It's always been me and Rich. And I've just, I was either too angry or uh, deluded, whatever, you know what I mean? Disappointed, hurt, depressed. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like um, to see it. And now that we have the active of, of life and experience, that's why this whole thing is working so well. And, you know, why Rich and I, you know, we're on the phone with each other just about bullshit, not family business. But we're on the phone three, four times a week and on the weekend, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just, it's taken a long time. You know, we're obviously not that clever, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, for you, that's got to be the most gratifying thing of all of it is that, you know, regardless of the success of the band or the fact that you guys are playing the from here in LA, or other arenas around the country, the fact that you guys have been able to sort of repair your relationship and the fact that you, like you say, you talk about bullshit. It's not just the business stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have shit to deal with and the kids and, you know, the kids are funny because, well, Rich has seven children. I have two. Wow. So he's an over, he's an overachiever. <laughs> um, but, you know, like my daughter is 11 and, you know, she's like, you know, this was a couple of years ago. So she was 
nine or whatever. She's like, what's the deal with you and Uncle Rich? You know, I'm like, wow, now I have to explain this shit to her. You know what I mean? I'm like, but it's good. You know what I mean? It, it's, it demands you, uh, it demands you dig deeper into the subject than just passing it off. And I think with anything in life, you know, I have, you know, my passion and my ideas about my art, though, you know, those, you know, it was funny. I was, uh, I was laughing like, when back in the nineties, I used to hang out at this, the sunset marquee, the whiskey bar a lot. And Dave gone from Depeche mode was there a lot. And he was very nice and always wanted to be friendly, but I was be such a dick, you know, and I didn't listen to Depeche mode. And I was like, I'm not. And now 30 years later, when I hear Depeche mode on Sirius on the 80, on the, you know, whatever the classic, you know, new wave channel, I'm like, God damn it. I wish I could be friends with Dave gone now. You know what I mean? I'm like, I love Depeche Mode. These songs are so good. You know what I mean? It's just funny how things are, you know what I mean? And, and you change. Well, he's, he's also a great dude, by the way, one of my favorite interviews, but it's, you know, it's interesting as we're doing this interview, I forgot about this, right? So, so just as you sort of put this in context, I actually started in publicity before I was a journalist. You and I have spoken dozens of times over the years, but worked for a woman by the name of Susan Crane, who was doing your publicity in the early 90s. And I worked with her at the Greek theater show. And you guys had this huge party. And I remember Brad Pitt showing up. This was right after Thelma and Louise. He showed up wearing almost no shirt. There were a bunch of models there, all this stuff. Um, but what's so funny is, you know, that's a scene that comes at the beginning of rock and roll. Now, you mentioned still liking, you know, to be in a room full of people. But I imagine as you're older as well, that all of that extraneous stuff, it just becomes exactly that extraneous. You realize it's kind of fun, but it's like, it, you know, it's, it's, look, it's, it's the glamor of rock and roll when you have your first platinum record and you're just starting out. Totally. I mean, that's a big, you know, I mean, that's a big part of it. I, but you know, I still see rock and roll as a great adventure. I love, you know what I mean? Part of not just playing music, but just the no travel part of COVID, you know, like my wife and I were like, we go to Jamaica a lot. I haven't gone to Jamaica. We go to Sicily. We go to Basque, Spain. We go to England. We go to Paris to see friends. We, you know, love restaurants. And the, and, and I think being on tour is kind of like that. I love meeting people. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still the person when I hear a new band I and I see they're playing, I go down to see them. And if I, I want to meet them and see what kind of people they are and, uh, tell them, you know, give the, hopefully, you know, say, man, thank you. I'm so inspired by your meet, what you're doing. That that could be Robert Plant or that could be the Texas gentleman or whatever, a new band or, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I still believe in the, it's almost a beatnik uh, mentality about the adventure that, that still lies out there within the digital wasteland of the fear-driven future. You know what I mean? It's still a, a real... Um, Again, for me to, as a songwriter, as a lyricist, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, it's all the conversations I have and all the ones I overhear and in the lobby, whatever, you know what I mean? There's still a lot of fertile uh, ground to explore, you know what I mean? And so in some ways, it's still always new, you know what I mean? In a, in a funny way. I don't know exactly what you mean, but I guess, you know, what I was getting at a little bit is the, you know, the glamour stuff of it, you know, while the meeting, the people and everything is fun, the glamour that comes with it probably does come sort of second at this point to the music. And like you say, it becomes easier to all of that. 
But see, this is interesting to me as well, right? And I want to go back to this. And, you know, like during the course of COVID, I spoke with Tony Iommi, right? And we were talking about the 40th anniversary of Heaven and Hell. Artists never go back and revisit their shit. It's very rare for an artist to have opportunity to go back and look at their stuff. I want to approach this from a writing standpoint. When you go back now and look at, you know, for the fact that you started as, you know, you went to interview at Bennington as a writer. Are there lyrical passages or things that really stand out to you that you're like, oh, wow, it's amazing that, you know, like I wrote this or it's so cool or, or that just you have a different appreciation for 30 years later? Well, I think, I mean, I mean, the first example that, that sticks out like a, like a, some sort of compound fracture <laughs> would be, <laughs> he talks to angels, you know what I mean? And that, you know, I kind of put to, I put together a song about some, uh, uh, you know, my youth was the, was dark and romantic, you know what I mean? Madness and like, you know, these kind of, you know, uh, existential, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, themes. But then a song I, I, I you know, I, I came up with a character. I wrote a song because of the whatever emotional component that riches, you know, that the song presented to me. But then I wrote a song that's resonated for so many years with so many people but I was really, it's just a made up song. You know what I mean? I didn't really, I'd never tried. I don't even think I'd probably tried cocaine at that time in my life. Not, not to say heroin, you know what I mean? So, you know, all that, you know, later in life, of course, you know, you find yourself in some more adult situations, if you will, or a darker place sometimes. But I think, you know, I look back and I'm like, okay, that, I mean, that's a pretty good start. You know what I mean? Like, I'm proud of that. Those, I'm proud of that little film win. You know what I mean? A lot of times I look at the lyrics as scenes, you know what I mean? And I, I look at it as a film, you know, if I, if I was making a film, like, I, I just want to write songs that are like Robert Altman movies, you know? <laughs> but, but it also is funny because, you know, you're talking about the first time, you know, like, back when we were kids, we'd be like, man, you know, she talks to angels. Oh man, I, you know, I got my first blow job when that song was on or my cousin died in a car crash and that was the cassette in the player. You know what I mean? These kind of, the, the whole spectrum of, of people's, I played the song at my wedding or I played the song at my dad's funeral. You know what I mean? Like those kind of things. And I'm the same way, you know, you, you, uh, you know, my wife knows the playlist when I'm gone. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's mostly just the madcap laughs, Sid Barrett. But anyway, uh, but you know what I mean? So I, I definitely can look back and, and, and pinpoint the thing. And we're jealous again, even, you know, I always loved, you know, it's like at one time, I mean, I mean, of course, Bob Dylan is the, he's still the king, you know, and, and Neil Young, but like, you know, Mick Jagger, man, I mean, you know, people love you can't always get what you want. But the, the best line of that song is he says, you know, we're going to blow a 50 amp fuse, you know, like, wow, man, that's so rad. You know, like I like a good like Chuck Berry. There's no Bob Dylan without Chuck Berry, the way he changes into rock and roll. I like cool rock and roll lyrics. You know what I mean? And I, I like a good rock and roll song. I like when someone can make that happen, you know. Um, but, it, but the same thing, I'm still just, you know, when we're writing, I'm, I'm just trying my, you know, I'm just trying my best, you know, to represent, you know, the image and the story. I want it to represent some sort of emotional 
place or uh, it has to resonate with another, with the listener, not just yourself, you know? And it's cool because of course, music, you have rhythm and melody and harmonies and, and dissidents and all these other elements. You know? No, absolutely. But it's funny because again, like what you were saying about, you know, it covering the full spectrum and, you know, to me, it's like, Tom Waits' song, Take It With Me, maybe one of the two or three greatest songs ever written, because that's a song that I say can be played at both a funeral and a wedding. But I look at the song now, and it's funny, I think about the song, and I mean, I love the song, I always have, but then it's like, man, that line where, you know, she wears a cross around her neck, they say the hair was from a little boy, the cross from someone she had not met. That's just one of those lines when you look at it, and you're just like, as a writer, you look at it, and you're like, you motherfucker. It's so good. (laughs) So it's funny. Do you look back on it, and you're like, huh, like, do you even know where something like that comes from? Or it's just simply like. Um, I'm, I'm still the same way where, you know, whether I'm working with Rich or like the, you know, the fucking lifetime careers worth the songs I composed for the, my solo group. I'm one of those guys who shit just drops out of the sky and, you know, and I don't. I can, I can maybe have little things, you know, some little, a word or a phrase or something, but yeah, it always just comes when it comes and it happens when it happens. I mean, the only difference now between my youth is I, I spent it probably spend more time on them. You know what I mean? Like there, I think there's more, <clears throat> I'll, I won't, you know, when I was a kid, I was kind of obsessed with, you know, the initial idea is the most important one. And, you know, I wrote a song like Sting Me or something like, which is a lot of lyrics. I changed the, you know what I mean? I wrote that fucking song in, in 40 minutes, the whole thing, you know, like without, and now when we write a new song, I might write a verse one day and then the next, you know what I mean? And play with that. You know what I mean? I just spend more in the morning and I used to write it in the middle of the night. That's the big difference. So for you, as you think about, you know, I, you guys did the tour, you know, you did an abbreviated tour in 2000. 1920. Now, as you think about coming back and that you're particularly excited to bring to a stage again or revisit or, you know, especially also too, because now it's been a few years since you guys toured as the Black Rose together. Obviously, you have toured, Rich has toured, but doing it collectively and being older, having a different appreciation for each other. Are there songs that you now are like, all right, I can't really rate see what Rich brings to this when we're on stage together again, because you have these different experiences to bring into it. Yeah, we have different guys, you know. We have like Isaiah Mitchell on lead guitar, who's incredible, and like you know, Sten is back on bass. We're very excited, and we have our Joel Robineau on keyboards, who's genius, genius guy. I mean, I'm I'm interested in the in the shake your money maker part, you know, that we're playing the record from start to finish in sequence, because. You know, we spent so much time after Shake Your Money Maker, you know, in these expansive musical places and, you know, adding this and that and this is this and we want this and, you know, that we're that we could kind of focus on this record that was, in reality, is the most pure essence of rock and roll of, of whatever we've done, you know? Um, and... And that it's funny because, you know, like I was saying, like, whether it's, you know, talking about, you know, whether it's the Dead Kennedys or the Replacements or Husker Du, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, or Aerosmith or ACDC or whatever, like this, this pure kind of place of like guitar driven, soulful rock and roll, 
That's, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in our focus and the kind of power we can generate by taking all the energy we put out to be expansive and bring it into like this show. You know what I mean? We have this incredible set design. We've never had anything like it. Um, and I think that's what Rich and I are super excited about. You know what I mean? Like for the first time in 30 years, we want to celebrate where we come from and what we are and where it started and like play the most popular stuff instead of being more obtuse, you know, which is also a part of rock and roll too. But for the first time ever, we can really, you know, sink our teeth into this thing. And, I, and to me, that's what is, you know, the most exciting. Well, see now, that also I think is something that comes from being older is having that appreciation. And I think it's, look, I use this analogy a lot, right? When you're a kid, you love your home, you love your family. You get older, you try and find your own way and you sort of pull away from it. And then as you get older, you realize and have your own family and stuff, how much you pick up from your parents and everything. So do you feel like you guys are out of place now? And especially because you're in a good place together where you can celebrate and appreciate the music and the impact it had on your life. Of course, of course. You know what I mean? Like, um, that's why this first show in Nashville is so amazing. It's like, you know, it's, it's a very Robinson centric night, you know, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm, hopefully both my kids will be there, but it's like, you know, me and my wife, Rich and his family, my mom, great friends. I mean, it's like the closest thing. Well, you know, our, our dad passed away about eight years ago, but it's a, it, it'll be uh, the closest thing to a Robinson family reunion that we probably will ever have, you know, and um and it is the family business, and we've had a, a we've had a miraculous career. We, you know what I mean? We've had an amazing ups and downs and sideways, and put it in the ditch and take it out of the ditch. And oh my God, we're going to you know like all these things that that life can afford you when you're resilient enough and talented enough to keep at it. You know. All right. So besides the shake your moneymaker stuff, are there other songs that you are particularly excited? Or maybe just songs you haven't thought about in a long time. Well, from from our little bit of rehearsing we've done, like, you know, I've always thought, like, Thorn in My Pride is a big part of the show. And, like, this, the way this band attacks that song. Because for us with the new guys and, I mean, I have to say the entire team around us, from management to, you know, CAA to Live Nation, we, I don't think we've ever felt so taken care of. You know what I mean? And, um I think that's a that's another place of just like wow you know like that gives us the freedom to to do what we you know to get to 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 have ultimate confidence in what you're doing. Um, not that we were ever lacking confidence, but um, yeah. And you know what the thing is, I won't really know until we get a few shows under our belts either. You know what I mean? So. We're kind of on, we like it on the fly like that. Rock and roll is supposed to be loose. You know, that if I wanted to be a perfectionist, I would have been an architect, but I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm a rock and roll singer living in a poetic construct. You know, I'm not really interested in straight lines. You know what I mean? All right. Well, we've got to wrap up in a second. Two last questions. One, the obvious one, because I would be just shitty at my job if I didn't ask this. And also as a fan, I'm just curious plans for new music is there thoughts of now that you guys are in a place where and like you say you made a lifetime's worth of music for your solo stuff i think well rich and i have written about 20 new songs over the last year and a half i'm think you know like i said kind of inspired again by our rekindled romance with the real true rock and roll 
essence. Um, but I, and, but they're not going anywhere. You know what I mean? So we want to keep writing and our main, we definitely have, I mean, we have, you know, we have lots and lots of, of songs now. Um, but I think the focus is the tour, you know what I mean? That's what we wanted to do last year. And our plans are to be on the road for at least two years before. So we're a ways away from in the studio, but that also gives us a lot of time to put together some more material. And I think we want to like, you know, make, make a really serious statement and, we feel that uh, a group of songs that you call an album is still a real viable way to show the, show the world what you're working on and what your work is. So touring, focused on this, and then we'll get to this music. But yeah, we've been writing a lot. Well, now I'm so curious because we talked so much about the artists that were influenced for you early on, but you're sort of in a second act for the Black Crows. Are there those artists that you look at for the way that they were able to do music later in life, where they got back together and put it out? Or it's like, it's funny you mentioned Rod Stewart, who I absolutely love. And he has been an interesting dude for the way that he's been able to do literally anything he wants. And it's like, oh, cool. I want to do the Great American Songbook, you know? And then I want to do, you know, rock stuff. So for you, as you enter into the second part of the Black Crows, are there those artists or bands that you look at for the way that, you know, they were able to evolve and you're like, okay, cool. This is what we want to do. Yeah. I mean, I think Robert Plant's a great example, you know, of a, of a person who is from one of the biggest, most influential rock groups of all time. And, you know, when he, when he is, when he play when he, when he plays the Zeppelin music, he's fantastic. And that he's gone off on his own and made all sorts of records and put together all sorts of bands. And he's still so dynamic. He's still so um, charismatic with his music and he loves music. You know what I mean? And I, again, we get back to that. I think that, so, you know, if I just had to pick one and like, I think where, where Robert is with his career and the way he's done it, I really look up to him, you know? I mean, he's, you know, I always considered him the the rock god. And you look at what he's done later in life, turning down the money for the Zeppelin reunion and, you know, doing the record with Alison Krauss. Literally, he's done. And I've gotten to interview him twice and literally he hasn't done a fucking thing to ever change the idea that he's the true rock god. Yeah. And But he just, you know, he's he, he is where he is. He makes his decisions. He has no bones about it. It's his decision to fucking make. And he puts out really, like his new single that just came out is fucking wonderful. It's a great, great song. Beautiful song, man, you know? This was a pleasure as always. I'll see you guys at the forum at some point soon. Fantastic, man. Be safe out there. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You have been listening to My Turning Point with special guest, Chris Robinson from the Black Crows. Thanks. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed Queen now only $19.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. 
It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 